Morning, everyone. Hello. So I'm Devet. Some people know me or recognize me as the guy with the with the white beard. It's true. Others lovingly, I hope, refer to me as Father Christmas. <laughs> In fact, uh, not too long ago, one afternoon, I was uh, I was fetching my kids from school. They are Abigail and Lara. They are uh, grades three and one. And um, as we were walking to the car, I noticed there was a, there was a lady, a mum, parked next to us, you know, busy loading her kids and, and their stuff into the car. And while she was doing it, um, a little boy, well, a younger boy, about three to four years old, was, was standing next to her. But when he saw me approaching, you know, with, with my girls, when he saw me approaching, he, he froze in what I can only describe as a, as a state or a stare of disbelief. I mean, he just, he just stared, eyes this big. It was quite unnerving. Um, so, you know, we get to the car and uh, I start to load them in and their stuff. And if you have young kids in school, you'll know you can't just let them climb in and, you know, off you go. You have to check that they've remembered everything. You know, books, jackets, jerseys, socks. I mean, you need, I have a little checklist. Um, and as I'm doing this, uh, well, it, it, it takes a few minutes. So as I'm doing this, you know, I'm, I'm moving around the car. And um, <laughs> whenever I disappear from this little boy's line of sight, he follows me. So as I move, just a second later, you see this, <laughs> this little head pops up, you know, eyes this big. Um, but eventually we were good to go. And I... I I open the driver's side door to get in, but before I can, I feel this little pull on my pants, and I, I turn around, and I, and I look down, and here's this little boy staring up at me. You know, he's just staring up at me, but standing right against me. So for a few seconds, we just kind of stood like that, you know? I'm staring down at him, he's staring up at me, eyes as big, and eventually I said, yes, my boy? And he, uh, he replied in a, in, a, in a somewhat hushed and almost reverential tone. And he said, Uncle, Uncle, you look just like Father Christmas. <laughs> but the way he said it, he wasn't, he wasn't making a statement. He was asking a question. It was as if he was asking, is it you? <laughs> Could it be that I found you? So yeah, I've been married uh, for almost 22 years to a beautiful young lady. She's sitting here on the side. Um, her name is Marietta. But I guess you can refer to her as Mrs. Claus. <laughs> no, no, let's rather not do that. Okay. Hopefully my wife can extend me some grace this morning. Speaking of which, if I had to, this morning, say to you the word grace, grace, what does that mean to you? What do you think of when you hear the word grace? What, what comes to mind? Some of us here might, without even thinking, say something like, well, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, like the old hymn says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. T'was blind, but now I see. It sounds amazing, doesn't it? 
Some of you might say, well, doesn't grace refer to God's kindness? You know, the favor and the pity that he, that he bestows on us. Isn't grace when God gives me something that I don't deserve? While others, like my good friend Stefan, you know, if you mention the word grace, you might just start quoting scripture. You know, by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, my grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12, I do not frustrate the grace of God. And there's so many others. So what is grace? It seems like a simple question. Grace is such a commonly used word in the church today. But the answer does have different angles to it. So let's pretend we open our Bibles, as we tend to do, and we, we grab our concordances, and we look up every single occurrence of grace in the Bible. And we find that there's roughly 140 instances of grace in the whole Bible, with about 120 coming out of the New Testament. And if we then take a closer look and we examine or we study these occurrences or instances of grace, we find something. We find that grace truly is amazing. There are two main uses of grace in the New Testament. Two main ways that grace is applied. Two main ways that it works in our lives. The first one positions grace as a disposition or as a quality or as an inclination in the nature of God. Now you might say, what does that mean? It simply means that grace is what inclines God to give free and undeserving gifts to sinners, like salvation. Grace is what inclines God, makes Him willing and eager to give free and undeserving gifts to sinners. You see, you cannot work to earn grace. You cannot work to earn it. It is a gift. It is free. It is His undeserved kindness. Let's go to Romans 3, verse 24. Okay. It says, and we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now this verse says we have been justified. We are declared righteous. We are acquitted from the penalties of our sin. We are accepted in the beloved, says Colossians. We are set right with God. How? How? By His grace. So what can I do? How can I contribute? How can I help? How can I work to help earn this? Well, the answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do. Nothing. It is free. It is undeserved kindness. The only thing that means you can do in this process of justification is to believe. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So it is from here that we find the, the common or the the well-known definition of grace, which is his unmerited favor. And this is what most people have in mind when they say that God is a God of grace. And it's true. And it's wonderful. Our eternal lives depend on it. None of us here today would be saved if his grace was not undeserved kindness and favor. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Can I say it again? Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Grace is what every man needs, what none can earn, and what God alone can and does freely give. His grace 
truly is amazing. Now you'll remember I said there are two main uses of grace in the New Testament. The second key usage of grace incorporates everything we've just discussed. And we've kind of summarized as his unmerited favor. But it also positions it as an influence or as a power or as a working of God that works in our hearts, that acts in our hearts to make us able. To make us able for what? That's a very good question. Let's go to Philippians 2. Verse 13. I love the scripture. It says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So according to this scripture, God is working in us, giving us the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. If I have a godly desire, I know that desire is from Him, because I know that nothing good can come out of my old heart. Nothing good can come out of my flesh, yes? I mean, we know. Romans 7 verse 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Only the Holy Spirit in us can give us the supernatural power required to accomplish this godly desire. So we could paraphrase Philippians 2.13 by saying that the Holy Spirit is continually giving us the grace, the desire, and the power to do what pleases Him. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. Paul speaking. By the way, you'll find that almost two-thirds of all the mentions of grace in the New Testament comes from Paul. That's why he's called the Apostle of Grace. So Paul writes and he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In this context, grace is his ability that he works in me by the Holy Spirit that enables and empowers me to do what I cannot do in my own strength, which is to obey him, to please him, to become like him. In this context, grace is his ability that he works in me by the Holy Spirit that enables us and empowers us to do what we cannot do on our own, which is to obey him. So we can take a step back now and we can look at both the, the uses of grace that we've been discussing and we can say that grace is his undeserved favor and his supernatural empowerment by which he saves us and enables us to live a life that pleases him. Grace is his undeserved kindness and his power by which he saves me and enables me to live a sanctified life, a life that pleases him, becoming more like Jesus. You can say it with me. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. It truly is amazing. This, sorry, this second usage or the second application of grace is what I would like for us to focus on for the rest of this message. If we agree that grace is his ability, that he works in me by the Spirit, that empowers and enables me to do what I cannot do on my own, which is to please and obey him, 
then how do I lay hold of it? How do I appropriate it? How do I walk in it? How does it become a reality in my life daily? What I want to share with you is cannot be considered exhaustive. In other words, it's not all-encompassing. Think of it as, a, as an introduction to the topic. Something to get us started. I think Joe will stop me if I have to go all-exhaustive. Very quickly. Okay, so firstly, are you guys ready? Are you still with me? Wonderful. Firstly, receiving His grace is an act of dying to live. Receiving His grace is an act of dying to live. To help explain this, we're going to take a look at three scriptures. Please think of the scriptures as three pieces that when you put them together, forms one clear picture. So we're going to look at the scriptures one by one, and then we'll put them together in the end to see what picture it creates. Is that okay? Okay, so our first scripture, you guessed it, 2 Corinthians 12. Probably one of the most well-known scriptures on grace, from verse 7 to 9. Yeah, you guys are on the ball today. Wonderful. So let's read. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I would like for us to focus on verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This phrase, made perfect, the Greek word is teleo. And it means to bring something to an end. The same way you would bring a process to an end, or how you would bring a course or a task to an end. Simply put, it means to accomplish or complete something by bringing it to perfection. And you already have the first piece of a picture. When God says to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness, he's saying, my power is accomplished and completed in you, brought to perfection in your weakness. That's the first piece of the picture. Can we put it one side? Okay, don't, don't lose sight of it. The second scripture, John 19. Guys, am I loud enough? I sound very loud on stage, so... Okay. John 19, 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Something very, very interesting. This phrase, it is finished, and the phrase we just read in Corinthians, made perfect, in the original Greek, identical. Identical. In other words, it is finished, and made perfect means the exact same thing. So here we have the second piece to our picture. When Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, he said, something had been accomplished. Something had been completed. Something had been brought to perfection in and through his death. That's the second piece. Are you guys still with me? Okay. So the third piece we find in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4. For he, Jesus, for he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. 
Now, we, we read just now in Corinthians, God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Here we read, Jesus was crucified in weakness. Meaning God's power was made perfect in Jesus' weakness on the cross. And here we find our third and final picture, or sorry, third and final piece to our picture. God's grace, his enabling power, was accomplished and completed in Jesus, brought to perfection at the point of his greatest weakness on the cross. So now we have three pieces that needs to form a picture, and we need to put it together and see what it means. The first piece, God says to Paul, Paul, my power is accomplished in you, completed in you, brought to perfection in your weakness. The second piece, Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. In other words, something had been accomplished, something had been completed, something has been brought to perfection in us through his death. And the third piece, Jesus was crucified in weakness, meaning that God's grace, his enabling power, was accomplished and completed, brought to perfection at, his, at the point of his greatest weakness, his death on the cross. So what does this mean? What is the picture we are meant to see? This. That when God says to Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, the example that we have, the example that we look to in order to understand what does this mean is Jesus' death on the cross. So that when we go to God for grace, his supernatural enablement, we understand that the way he accomplishes in us, the way he completes in us, the way he brings it to perfection in us, is the same way he did it in Jesus, through his death. Asking for his grace is therefore saying, Lord, I understand that the way you empower me with your grace is the same way you did it for Jesus. You perfected, you accomplished, completed your grace in Jesus, in his weakness, on the cross, and you require the exact same of me to deny myself, to pick up my cross, and to follow Jesus' example of dying to self. This way, like Jesus, I can then live by the power. God's power was perfected in Jesus, in his weakness on the cross. And his power is perfected in us as we pick up our cross. We deny ourselves and we die to self. Receiving his grace, his power, is an act of dying to live, of dying to self so I can live by the power of God. But what does it mean? What does it mean to live by the power of God? I'm moving on to my second point. What does it mean? What does it look like? How do I recognize it? The well-known John 15 provides us with a, with a beautiful analogy of a life lived by the grace, by the supernatural enablement of God. Let's quickly read in John 15. It's just three scriptures, 4 to 5 and verse 8. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So here Jesus commands us and he says, abide in me which simply means to remain in the same place or to actually make yourself at home. Abide in me. 
Why must we abide in him? Why? Well, he says, you cannot bear fruit by yourself. You cannot bear fruit by yourself. In fact, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, which literally means you can produce nothing. But if we abide in him and he abides in us, we not only bear fruit, we bear much fruit. But here's the question, whose fruit will I be bearing? My own? No. I am dead. I am dead. We just spoke about the fact that his grace enables me to die to self. I am dead. A dead man cannot bear fruit. I can mimic fruit. I can pretend to have fruit. But like Jesus says in Matthew 7, by their fruit, they will be known. It is as I abide in him and he abides in me that he can bear his fruit through me. You see, his grace not only empowers me to die to self, but to live by the power of God, to abide in him. And he bears his fruit through me. Why? Why do we need to bear fruit? Lots of whys today. Why do we need to bear fruit? I mean, we, we spoke just now about why we need to abide, okay, so, because we can't bear fruit by ourselves. But why do we need to bear fruit? Verse 8, we just read it. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. You see, His grace in, enables me to abide in Him, bearing much fruit. His fruit, so that the Father is glorified. In Hebrews 4, we find another very well-known scripture on grace. Hebrews 4.16. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we confidently go to the throne of grace to ask for grace and help in a time of need, may the, may the cry, may the motive, may the prayer of our heart be, my Father, I ask you for your grace, your supernatural enablement in this situation. Will you now bear your fruit through me so that you, my Father, may be glorified? This, Jesus said, is how you prove, how you show that you are my disciples. His grace empowers me to die to self so that he can bear his fruit through me bringing glory to the Father. Receiving His grace is an act of dying to live in order to bear much fruit so that the Father is glorified. And thirdly, with a sacrificial spirit that gives no place to self-pity. About two and a half years ago, um, my... <clears throat> I told myself I won't get emotional. About two and a half years ago, my wife got to the point where she pretty much burnt out. Um, it's a bit of a long story, but in a nutshell, she, um, she started a new job, and then for two years, she didn't sleep. And then one day, she just fell over, literally and figuratively. And we, um, we ended up in hospital, where the doctor diagnosed her with acute exhaustion. Burnout. And uh, he booked her off for a month. And if you've dealt with, uh, with, uh, with burnout, you'll know that a month is not nearly enough. But we were very grateful. But he did so with a warning. And he said, if something doesn't change immediately, 
you're at great risk of either stroke or something worse. So to help ease her load, uh, she obviously struggled with capacity. To help ease her load, I took over much of her home duties that we used to share. You know, lots of little things, like uh, taking the kids to school, fetching them, uh, bathing them, feeding them, doing all the shopping, lots of little things that if you, if you add them up, uh, it consumes a lot of time. So fast forward about a year to early last year, and one morning in my quiet time, I felt, I felt the Lord give me a promise that he would restore. And then if you fast forward, fast minus another year to about February, March this year, you know, by, by this time I was getting very tired and um, feeling very frustrated and feeling very, very sorry for myself. And one specific morning, my wife, I guess, clearly sensing my, my irritation with everything I had to do that day, offered to do something so that I wouldn't have to. And I declined the offer, but my behavior, my response was far from being gentle. I was, I was rude, I was disrespectful, I was very harsh with her. And um, this actually happened just before I went, well, just as I was about to have my quiet time. So we finished the conversation and I stormed into our room and I sat down with my Bible and I sulked like a little boy. I knew I was wrong, obviously, um, but instead of apologizing to my wife, I, I took my chances with some Oh Lord prayers. You know the Oh Lord prayers? Oh Lord, where are you? Oh Lord, you promised you would restore her. Oh Lord, it's the wife you gave me. Oh Lord, it's, it's, um, it's been a long two years. As I was busy praying this, the Lord showed me a picture, but clear as day. It was a picture of me carrying my wife on my back. I was giving her a, a piggyback ride. You know, in Afrikaans we say, okay? So I was, I was carrying her on my back and we were laughing. We were laughing and having, and having so much fun. And when I saw this, the, the Lord spoke and he, and he said to me, this is how it was meant to be for you. To carry your wife's burden with joy. And as he said this, you know, I, I literally saw um, Galatians 6 verse 2 in my head, you know, like a... a like a movie in it. And it says, carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the requirements of the law of Christ. That is the law of Christian love. And then the Lord said to me, and there is grace for you to carry this burden. My grace is available to you. But your self-pity robs you of my grace. And he continued... And he said, um, and what's worse? And I thought, what's worse? <laughs> he said, what's worse? The way you've been treating your wife, you have made it feel as if she is a burden to you. And she's not a burden. She's a blessing. And then he said, get up. Get up. Get up now. Get up and go and repent to your wife of how, for how you've treated her. So I, I walked out of the room. But at this point, I was crying uncontrollably. Um, 
So my wife sees me and she's like, whoa, what's going on? What happened? What's wrong? You know, and I can't speak, you know, she's checking me for cuts and bruises and, you know, did you fall? <laughs> Asking me how many fingers am I holding up? Um, but I can't get a word out, you know. All I can do is, I'm like, <laughs> I, uh, I sound like Jono when he takes the mic. But eventually I, uh, I composed myself and I, um, and I repented. And the Lord showed me a way to deal with my self-pity. Self-pity is a sin. You see, at its root, the sin of self-pity is that we evaluate ourselves and we evaluate our circumstances as though God is not our gracious Father. We look to ourselves, we look to our circumstances and we say, or we think, woe is me. Woe is me. Look at what I have to sacrifice. Look at what I have to deny myself. Look at what I have to give up. It's not fair, Lord. It's not fair. I deserve better. Self-pity is the brother of entitlement. And it's rooted in pride. And what does the Bible say about pride and grace? James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So how do we deal with, how do we overcome self-pity? Well, I guess there's many ways, but I would like to share with you just very quickly what the Lord showed me. We need a proper biblical understanding of the principle or the concept of sacrifice, of self-denial. You see, in, in, in Matthew 19, Jesus tells his disciples how hard it will be for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they are freaked out. They are astonished. And they say to him, Lord, but who then can be saved? And he says, well, you know, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And then in verse um, 27 from Matthew 19, Peter responds. And he says, then Peter said, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? We've left everything, Lord. We've sacrificed. We've denied ourselves. Everything for you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. Now, this response of Jesus indicates that the way to think of sacrifice, the way to think of self-denial, is to sacrifice yourself a lesser good for a greater good. A lesser good for a greater good. In this example, you sacrifice one mother in order to obtain a hundred mothers. Because he says a hundredfold. You sacrifice or you deny yourself one house in order to obtain a hundred houses. In other words... Jesus wants us to think about sacrifice in a way that rules out all self-pity. Let me give you an example. Before you think you're going to get a hundred houses, let me just give you an example. I could see Junior in front getting very excited. Okay, so Philippians 3, again Paul. Philippians 3 from 7 to 8. It says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now I said a moment ago that the way to think of sacrifice, of self-denial, is to deny yourself a lesser good for a greater good. Now here Paul is saying, he says, I count everything as a loss. I count them as rubbish. What is he talking about? What is the lesser good that Paul is denying himself? His comfort. His safety. His well-being. His belongings. His needs and wants. And what's the greater good? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord in order that I might gain Christ. You see, Paul never suffered from self-pity. Do you know why? Because he understood that what he sacrificed, what he denied himself, was nothing compared to knowing Jesus. The lesser good, what he wanted. The greater good, knowing Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, did he, did he live this principle? Did he demonstrate it? Let's take a look. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Hebrews 12 2 says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What is the lesser good here that Jesus denied himself? His safety. His well-being. His will. His life. And the greater good? Bringing many sons to glory. Raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father. The full outcome of the finished work of the cross. What about my own situation? What is the, the lesser good that I need to deny, to deny myself? My comfort. My time. My needs. My will. My idea of what's important. And the greater good? My wife being able to cope and recover. A stable family. His grace working in me to bear his fruit so that the Father may be glorified. When we understand and believe that what we sacrifice, what we deny ourselves, is nothing compared to abiding in him. When our focus shifts from the lesser good to the greater good, then our self-pity shifts from woe is me to I count all as loss. For there's a passing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, that I may gain Christ. Amen? Receiving His grace is an act of dying to live in order to bear much fruit so that the Father is glorified with a sacrificial spirit that gives no place to self-pity. And then fourthly and second to last, I'm, I'm almost finished. By faith. By faith. Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It is by faith that we gain access to His grace. It is by faith that we lay hold uh, of grace. So if we lay hold of grace by faith, then we need to be intentional in strengthening, in building, in growing our faith. So how do we do that? Well, there are many ways. But the most fundamental means of building or growing your faith is revealed to us in Romans 10, 17. It says, oh, you guys are quick. It says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the, the word of Christ. So we hear the word, we read the word, we study the word. And the Holy Spirit, 
He works in us. He enlightens our understanding. He opens our eyes. And we believe the word. And our faith grows. So if we want to lay hold of grace in our time of need, we need to apply our faith. Which comes through the word. Now in Ephesians 6, we read the the well-known portion of scripture where we are told, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We all know it, right? Okay, now in verse 17, it says the following of Ephesians 6. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So part of the whole armor of God that we need to put on, we need to put on or take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now there's something very important to understand about taking up the sword of the spirit or putting on the word of God. Philip, would you mind coming up? So everyone, this is Philip. Thank you. Um, Philip not only, would you mind this side? Philip not only agreed to, um, to be my prop for this illustration, um, you also organized the props. So you can definitely, when you speak of Philip, you can definitely say he's a very proper guy. That might be why we lost last week, eh? Okay, sorry. Okay. So, the, n- n- not yet. Okay, so this is Philip's sword. Philip, would you mind coming a bit more forward? This is Philip's sword. Can everyone see his sword? Philip, show the people your sword. Okay, it's a beautiful sword. This is Philip's sword. He had to put it on. How did Philip put on the sword of the Spirit? How? Through reading the Word. Through meditating on the Word. Through praying the Word. Through studying the Word. Even wrestling with the Word. Through praising the Word. So that when Philip is in a situation where he needs to ask for grace and he needs to apply his faith to lay hold of it, he can pull his sword. He can pull his sword. Okay, why? Because he spends time continually putting it on. Okay, put it back. Sorry, it's it's difficult with a a sword and a mic. Um, But here's the thing. I cannot pull his sword. It's his sword. I cannot pull his sword. It's his. He put it on. I cannot pull his sword. I can only pull my own. So if I don't spend time putting on the sword of the Spirit, if I don't spend time putting on the Word, then when I'm in a situation where I need to trust God for grace and apply my faith to lay hold of it, chances are I'm going to struggle to pull the sword. I might just reach for it in vain. If I'm not wearing it, I cannot wield it. If I'm not wearing it, I cannot use it. Thank you, Philip. Does it make sense? You know, D.L. Moody once said, he said, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith did not seem to come. One day I read in the 10th chapter of Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I had up to this time closed my Bible and prayed for faith. I now opened my Bible and began to study and faith has been growing ever since. So receiving his grace is an act of dying to live in order to bear much fruit so that the Father is glorified. 
with a sacrificial spirit that gives no place to self-pity. By faith. And lastly, and I'm ending with this, answering his invitation to intimacy. Can we go back to Hebrews 4, please? Hebrews 4, verse 6. It says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, this scripture tells us there's this amazing offer of grace available to us. But if we're not careful, we might miss the fact that this offer of grace is wrapped in an invitation for intimacy. You see, the author of Hebrews uses the phrase, come boldly to the throne of grace. And you'll remember that in the Old Testament, only the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, was allowed to enter into the, most innermost, the, the innermost part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, okay, with the blood of a sacrificial animal. And certainly not with confidence and boldness, but with fear and trembling. Why? Because he was entering into the very presence of God. If the high priest entered in on any other day of the year, he would die in the presence of God. Go and read it, Leviticus 16. But here, here the author of Hebrews says, come boldly, come confidently to the very throne of grace. His offer of grace in our time of need is an invitation for intimacy. You see, he says, come to me. Come to me, come to my throne, and I will give you of me. You see, His grace is the Holy Spirit that works in us, that enables us and empowers us. We cannot bypass Him in our pursuit for grace. He is the offer of grace. In seeking grace, I am seeking Him. My desire for intimacy and my desire for His grace should be one and the same thing. Seeking His grace should lead to intimacy with Him. And seeking His grace should flow from intimacy with Him. We cannot separate the giver of grace from the offer of grace. His offer of grace is an invitation to be intimate with Him. Come to me and I will give you me. So let us run. <laughs> let us run. Let us run to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and help in our time of need, knowing that He will perfect Jesus in us as we die to live, knowing that He will bear His fruit through us, that the Father may be glorified, knowing that it will cost us as we sacrifice and deny ourselves, but counting all things as loss, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that not only saves but also supernaturally empowers a wretch like me to live a life that pleases the King. Amen.